<laughs> Gosh, John, I forget how good you are at karate. That's incredible. I know, man. I mean, it's all about the right belt. It is. Timing you know? or your leather belt. Exactly. I, I feel like maybe, is that not, that's what you meant. Not really, okay. but speaking of, oh, Dave, wow, I'm yeah, just yeah. going to try to transition to okay. save you. <laughs> Finally, Dave, Yeah. warm spring days are arriving. Oh, Am I gosh. right? Isn't it great? You know what? I need a new pair of shades that I don't have to baby. Do you know what I'm saying, John? I don't want to take care of them. Let me put them on, take them off, and not have to worry Look, about it. Hey, Dave, I know exactly Sorry. Sorry, what I didn't you mean. Sorry, I didn't mean to rant. Knock around is the solution. They've been making high-quality shades that don't break the bank okay. since 2005. Oh, wow. And they've actually been my personal go-tos for years. Oh, yeah. I love Knockaround, John. They have over 20 different frame styles, so there's something for everyone, including tons of kids' pairs. That's right. So whether you're looking to rep your favorite sports teams, mm-hmm. you know, like you're a sports guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> spend some relaxation time in the yard, yep. or cruise down Broadway with the windows down oh. like Dave does uh-huh. all the time. All the time. Every Tuesday and Thursday mm-hmm. and Saturday. Mm-hmm. Knock around. That's what you need. Yeah, yeah. All of their lenses have UV 400 protection, which is basically like sunscreen for your eyes, which, by the way, I've tried that, and it hurts. <laughs> Use the sunglasses, everybody. With polarized adult pairs starting at 28 bucks. you can get a few pairs to leave in your car, toss in your beach bag, or lend to a friend in need. Dave, that is such a good price I that I might buy a pair just to intentionally lose them. I don't love that logic, John, but I know, you do but have a history of misplacement. It's not around Don't fight me because like of the karate stuff. But it could so. be perfect for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, Dadville fans, don't squint through family beach days yeah. or trips to the park. Check out knockaround.com and use the promo code DADVILLE15 for 15% off your order. That's DADVILLE15 for 15% off your order at knockaround.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Dadville. I'm John. I'm Dave. And I'm John again. <laughs> and today... Still John <laughs> after still John. all these years. Guys, today, Harrison Scott Key. We have so much to say. This might be our longest intro so much to, to a podcast. Say so much. You've I'm just going to talk and you just I'm, I'm going to think of song. <laughs> whatever song comes to mind. <laughs> That doesn't even fit. It doesn't, but you wanted to sing that. You know, uh, HSK. um, Well, let's talk about how we first discovered him. Yeah. So there's a funny story about that. For my 40th birthday, which was two years ago, (laughs) um, I'm surprised my brain still works at this old age. Um, One of my dear friends and pastor, pastoral friend, Mm -hmm. but was a friend first for years and years, Mr. Chad Scruggs, um, who's the uh, pastor at the church I go to, gave me um, uh, Harrison's first book as a gift and said, this is the funniest book I think I've ever read. And my friend Chad uh, reads a lot of books. He's probably one of the most well-read friends that I have. And so when I got it, I got kind of intimidated because I was... (laughs) I was like, I was like, man, I just don't know. I think I assumed it was going to be like this heady because Chad's really smart, and this is going to be like this really heady, hard to get through, funny book. Which is funny because I do love David Sedaris. I love humorous writers, yeah. but um, I don't know why I just didn't read it. I think I was just being stubborn. And then um, probably a year later, it was about a year ago now that I actually was like, I'm going to read this book, and was just. Well, we were you were reading it when we were on vacation down in Florida. That's right. And so we would be sitting by the pool. Uh, I'd be lifting weights. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Dave, we, well, was we didn't just, have weights. You were lifting the children. Right. Yeah. 
and our spirits, like against my will. <laughs> and Dave would just be laughing every like thirty seconds, like audibly. And just, this is not giggles to myself. There this is, is no exaggeration here. Like Dave was, he could have been reading a fifteen hundred page book in Hebrew, and I would have been like, I have to read that yeah, book. Yeah. I have to learn that language to read this book. Because I've never seen you laugh. Hebrew is so known hard. as a uh, just a hilarious, hilarious, language. a language of hilarity. <laughs> Hebrew in Hebrew means language, <laughs> language of, of hilarity. hilarity. Song of Solomon, loosely translated, means language of hilarity. Um, and so you finished the book on vacation, and then I started it on vacation, and I am the world's slowest reader. So. I must confess that I hadn't finished that book when we did this interview. And then you got his second book, mm-hmm. which I am two-thirds of the way through now. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I, I, I'm such a slow reader. I don't know why, but it, they are so funny. And I wanted to, before the interview that we did with him, I was going through his first book, World's Largest Man, and like jotting down quotes and then i eventually stopped because i was just marking every other sentence and we should and we should tell you the names of the books i mean he'll talk about them but the first one that i was reading was world's largest man the second one is called congratulations who are you again and uh and yeah john tells the truth they they i read i got through with world's largest man and immediately ordered uh congratulations who are you again and there, there, there. I mean, if if you're listening to this, hopefully, you know, we have some sway in your life. We hold some power over you to influence decisions that you make. Uh, that's really. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna give it up. That is our goal with this podcast, and you'll see it sort of co- come to a culmination at the end of this season. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is to read those books. And I'll tell you that the the John is halfway through the second one we were talking about. It, it, they do well. That's two thirds. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fair pushback. He's almost done. It's just as funny, and it's maybe a little more potent and heartfelt than the first one. I think it's always tricky when you read these kind of books because. John was actually saying this the other day we were talking about it. And he's like, man, it's just as good. You always get nervous when you love a book, especially yeah, one yeah. that's sort of autobiographical in nature because right. how much more is there to spelunk, you know? Yeah. But um, it's really, really good. And this interview was, it, it lived up to, uh, I think, what both of our expectations were. Um, well, and I remember while we were, we were sitting by the pool, you're reading the book, you finished it, and we were like, we should get them for the podcast. <laughs> yes. And you just opened up your phone, found them on Instagram, sent him a DM, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll do it." Yeah, which was that like, easy. Have a f- I hadn't felt that cool in a decade. <laughs> um, and he is a hysterical Instagram follow, by the way. His stories yeah. are hot. Every time I see that Harrison's got story, he's added to his stories. It's a highlight of my uh, of my day. Um, and I had a real kismet with him because we're both from Mississippi, and so I think. Uh, reading, especially the first book, The World's Largest Man, he talked so much about Mississippi, and it was just kind of like a cheat code because I related so much to those stories. <laughs> I'm starting to think about some of the hunting stories, and it's already making me laugh. But um, uh, and I'll and I'll be so bold to say that I think his answer to you know one of our last questions is the best answer ever to a question on the podcast. It got me square in the tickles. It just really, really got me. I'm not going to give it up, but but stick to the end of it because uh, he really nails the landing on that one. So without further ado, 
and a do further without. <laughs> Harrison Scott King. HSK, can I call you that? Uh, yeah, Doctor HSK, please. <laughs> Doctor HSK, which sounds like DRHSK. Yeah, <laughs> which sounds at this point like a keyboard player in a funk band. Y'all give it for Doctor HSK. <laughs> 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 Always smiling, might be blind, might not. Yes. Terrible clavinet sound, like the worst. Nobody knows. Sound. Yeah, yeah. That's his it. bandmates can't figure out if he's blind or not. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I played. So I sat in with a band. I played the drums, and I sat in with a band when I was uh, uh, many moons ago. And uh, the name of the band. This was just at an old blues club downtown Jackson, Mississippi. And the and the band's name. They were TC and the Midnighters. And TC was blind as a bat. He would just sit on his amp the whole time and play. And I said, TC, why do they call him the Midnighters? He goes, because when I look around, that's all I see. Oh. I was like, like, I I will be in this band forever, TC. I was like, cool. That's, I was like, that was pretty creative. Always midnight. (laughs) (laughs) That's also just a great way for him to answer your question. How you doing, TC? It's always midnight, baby. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but sure, I'm in. Here's and what we like to do, the way we come in on these uh on this very successful huge podcast that we have going. What did we call it last night? John, I loved uh, the um the sexy what was it the Oh, some sexy sound bites. Sexy sound bites, yeah. Um That's a trademark. Yeah, and and I this is what's great about this is that, that it's all here um compiled for me on your site, which that picture of you next to that doll is wonderful and mildly disturbing. I love how we start because I think this is like people get the little the little flyover. So Harrison Scott Key, which is you, is the author of two books, Congratulations, Where Are You Again? and The World's Largest Man, winner of the Thurber Prize for American Humor. He has spoken at TEDx. Is it TEDx or TEDx? Uh, TEDx. Okay. And hundreds of book festivals, conferences, and universities around the nation. Harrison's humor and nonfiction have appeared in both the best American travel writing, Oxford American, Outside, The New York Times, The Bitter Southerner, uh, also known as my aunt, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Town and Country, The Mockingbird Salon, Savannah Magazine, Reader's Digest, Image, Southern Living, Golf, Gulf Coast, which there should be a magazine called Golf Coast. Anyway, creative nonfiction and more. He holds an MFA which I really hope that stands for cuss words in creative nonfiction, PhD in playwriting and works at SCAD where he has held appointments as chair of liberal arts, professor of English, professor of writing and executive dean. He lives in Savannah, Georgia with his wife and children. So the question we always, uh, we love starting this way. When you hear the list of those things, like what do you think? Like, where does your brain go? And you hear like, look at all the stuff that you've accomplished. Um, why don't I have a pool? <laughs> Why is my car so old? You publish in Reader's Digest. You need you need a car, a topless car. When I look my accomplishments, I've done such a good job of spinning my success that people are shocked when they find out that like I like I have to text my wife, don't spend any money until Friday. Yeah. I reminded my children um, a couple of days ago that the coolest jobs uh, almost always make less money than the most terrible jobs. The terrible jobs are, are make all of the money. Um, and that it takes a lot of money to sort of get yourself out of your bed to go do the terrible job, which is why they give you a boat. They give you a swimming pool to do that. 
they don't need to give you a swimming pool to do the kind of stuff we do, um, but it feels <laughs> like they should. And so that's the question I always ask myself. That's what you should have asked your publishers. Just like, look, can we just, what, what is the pool addendum? <laughs> um, two days ago, my agent said, what do you want? I'm working on a, a third book right now. Um, and she's calling my breakout book, which that's, thank you so much. That means a lot. I was like, I thought that was the first one. She goes, it was good. That was the plan. Um, <laughs> so what do you want out of this book? I said, I want more money than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> and she, I don't know how she knew it being my agent. Cause she just does not even laugh when I say stuff like that. She goes, okay, well, okay. Okay. And I'm like, just still like, actually, I want a pool, a dry pool full of more money than you can imagine. That's actually, that's really what I want. I want to throw myself into a pool full of gold Krugerans. (laughs) And I want to break my neck in half and have enough money to reconstruct my body with the necks of poor people. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Or have, or just get Chuck Norris's head put on my old body. That, that would be the, yeah. heads <laughs> every day minds. but people would know it's me because they'd be like a, i'd wear a, the same hat every day yes yes like yeah. okay which feel, i think that was like the first draft of face off with nick cage they were like what if he just had a different hat every day no we called it head party <laughs> i would see that band i would see that band um, why don't i have a pool is is got to be the best response to that question that we've had so far we've asked no literally every... our, our former guests but that yeah. is the best response <laughs> it may also be they didn't say that because they may all actually have pools yeah that that may good. be the problem that's a good point. there are people who work for me who have pools <laughs> is there something not right about that <laughs> like wait a second wait a second so this is, you know, I, I want to tell you, Harrison, in all seriousness, I, I told John last night, I think of all of our interviews so far, I don't know that I've been as like giddy about an interview as this one. And and for a couple of reasons, one, you're another Mississippi guy. So this is, this is a little bit of like, I feel some kismet here, you know, it's like, uh, which I love that too. I, I can't tell you how much, and I know I speak for John, how much I have enjoyed these books. They are so wonderful. You know, for forever for me, uh, me, me talk pretty one day was like, that was the book I remember because I remember reading it. And when he actually gets to that story, when David Sedaris gets to the actual me talk pretty one day story, I laughed so hard. Like I couldn't get it together. Like it was, and I didn't know up until that age that I could laugh that hard at, at written word, like genuinely, you know what I mean? Like comedians, dumb and dumb or whatever but I really had never read something that evoked so much laughter. And so it was kind of the, you know, the, the, uh, the bar was sort of set. And I, my, one of my best friends, who's actually the pastor at our church, I went to school with him, was in his wedding. We just actually hired him up from Dallas year, two years ago. He, for my 40th birthday, two years ago, gave me the world's largest man. He's like this, and this is one of the smartest guys. One of the, he's the, the probably the most well-read friend that I have. And he said, this book, is the only book I'm giving you pre birthday. You have to read it. And for whatever reason, I think knowing that it was funny, I just sort of put it off because I was like, I just, you know, funny is hard for me in written form. And so finally, I had an afternoon. This was so random, like six months ago. And I was like, I'm going to open that book. And I, like, page three started laughing. And I was like, 
oh, <laughs> I may have found it. And so it was so fun reading to that. And then I just got through reading. Um, congratulations. And it, and I think the thing, the other compliment I want to give you is, is so much of not only are they really funny, but it, you're so stealthily tricky, potent. You know, it's like you, you do a really great job of right as I'm laughing really hard. There's like a little last twitch that I go, ooh, ooh, that's good. That's good. Okay, I felt that, you know. And I think that's a real gift. I mean, obviously, you know that. It's what you do for your living. But just to encourage you, I, I was so, I loved reading the book so much. And I was so, John and I were just so geeked about this. Uh, and it sort of, we, we also laughed, I said this too. It kind of feels like cheating. You're the first author we've had on. And, you know, everybody else, you know, the records, you know, their movies, you know, their, you know, their books like that, that are like, we, we've had some like, um, sort of like therapy people on that with children and dads and how to be. And so, you know, but you don't know their life. You know what I mean? You know, you know, your version of their life or what they sing about or talk about or who they act like in their movies. But this was sort of overwhelming in such a fun way. Cause it's like, we've got so much info, <laughs> you know, like when you're interviewing an author, it's sort of like, are we going to have to do like a nine part series? <laughs> Because <laughs> there's so much info. Uh, but I'm so excited that you're on. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thanks for doing it. Well, it's good to be here. I'm actually in the middle of, of writing a jazz opera about my life. Good job. And, um, it's going to be, well, it's it's like a jazz fusion thing. It's like okay. all Chick Corea, Return to Forever, kind of cool, fun fusion. Um, but that's short. It'll be a shorter than the audio book. So it'll be easier <laughs> for people to interview me later. Who's playing Vinnie Caluda in the in the movie? Do you know yet? Um, we're actually uh, Robert De Niro. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, Robert De Niro <laughs> playing Vinnie. Caluda. All like the seven musicians who get that joke are listening right now and laughing really hard. That's Al Demiola played by Al Demiola Jr. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to play your own dad in the movie? Oh my! Well, I mean, I may actually sort of move into, you know, your book, your first book. So one of the things I kind of want to start talking about, um, and this is, I told John, I was like, dude, I'm going to be really selfish in this interview, so you have to forgive me. But there's there's Mississippi questions that I'm so fascinated by. So one of the first things I want to talk about is growing up in Mississippi, I wrote this as, as a creative, sort of feels like a stranger in a strange land. You know, it, it's there's not really a, there's not a, a real place for that, you know. Yet, it's one of the most seminal states for creative output in, in the U.S. I mean, a friend of mine who's also from Mississippi and a very proud Mississippian from Clinton told me years ago, he said, you have one of the most arguable best playwrights of all time in Tennessee Williams. You have Eudora Welty, who's one of the most successful poets. John Grisham, yes, but also more importantly, William Faulkner. Uh, and then the blues, which is basically pop music. And so what is it about that state? What is it about Mississippi that um, one, there's as you grow up, you would think because of the success it's had in sort of putting out these ins insanely talented, gifted creatives. Yet there's not really a culture for that as a kid. Uh, it's all the trauma, all the mm -hmm. trauma of Mississippi is what creates the great art. I mean, it's true of all of our lives. Usually, um, being abused or not having any, anybody to love you enough to hit you um, is also also <laughs> make you an artist. So I don't know. I mean. Uh, James Earl Jones is from Mississippi, you know, the Darth Vader, um, the man who uh, who created Yoda, the puppet, you know, Jim Henson, Jim Henson. from Mississippi. So um, and of course, you know, Elvis Presley and 
most of the great music um, invented in America was born somewhere between Memphis and New Orleans, which is yeah. Mississippi. I don't know, man. I mean, per capita, it's pretty wild. Anytime anybody would make fun of Mississippi, I would always remind them that we, we had more Nobel Prizes in literature per capita than any other state in the union. So to shut the hell up. But it is a, it's a messed up place, man. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, I think it's more it's one of those places like when you realize you're creative and Mississippi is not the only place like this. It's a lot of smaller communities. I think it's probably the only state like that where when you realize you're creative, it's like you see all the bones of dinosaurs of creative things, but they're all dead and gone and everything is so desolate. So it's sort of like in, you know, planet of the apes when you see the statue of liberty buried in the sand that's sort of what it feels like you're like something happened here but those were all terrible people i mean nobody talked about liking faulkner in mississippi they do now because they know that that's the sort of tourism marketing piece um but there was no tour mississippi tourism in the 1980s you the tourism was you left uh <laughs> you got you took a tour um, so it's a little different now. Uh, obviously, writers like Jasmine Ward, I don't know if y'all have read her work. Uh, she's won like 15 National Book Awards. She's my age. Uh, she teaches at Tulane now. Um, you'll, you will have heard of her books if you Google her. Um, There's so many great voices and writers and filmmakers and there's so much in Mississippi. That's so cool, though. It's such a cool thing to be creative and realize that when you that when you discover the sort the art of your, wherever you're from, I think that's true of any creative anywhere. When, you know, I mean, if you grow up in LA, you probably naturally hate LA bands for that reason, right? Cause they're, they're from where you're from. And so it's no big deal. Uh, and then you, you know, discover many years later uh, that, you know, Steely Dan recorded all of its albums right down the street from your house. And you're like, Oh, that is cool. You know, there is a legacy. Yeah it's a strange and cool thing to come from a place that's so messed up and so confused. Uh, but it's interesting. It is an interesting place. And that has given me many gifts in my career. You know, yesterday, Dave and I were talking about that question and I, I said pain. I do think that it's like, you know, you say trauma, like half joking. I think it's definitely true. And I think as artists, like we probably all experienced it, uh, on some level growing up, you know, like there's a certain point when I was growing up that like, you know, playing classical piano somehow was not cool anymore in eighth grade, you know, by the popular kids. There's a certain kind of like low level, lonely pain in that, that is the best ingredient for the craft itself, for like the art, you know, you can't get that if, if it's uh, just smooth sailing the whole time. You have this moment, which I've, I've, I resonated so much with this, like when I really started getting, like I drew a lot growing up and, you know, got into comic books for a while and my best friend was into them too. So there was such a connection of like, I got my buddy mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and it, you talk about that in your book about how you had your friend that he introduced you to, to a hitchhiker's guide. Right. Mm -hmm. And you just thought I'm holding this lightning, you know, it's like, what is this book? And it's making me feel these things, but you had your guy, mm -hmm. you know, you had your, your immediate community, even though it was just two of you. But I think the other thing that really fascinated me, so there's kind of part one of you realizing you, you have this thing that you're like, I would love to make people feel like you said, like this book makes me feel. But part two of that that's really fascinating to me is 
And I, I laughed so hard this quote. And everyone laughed, which is what people do when you tell them the truth. Laughter was power. You also said, holy ghost power. And I thought, so it's not just the writing, but you had this addition of laughter, which you're like, okay, not only do I want to write, and obviously Hitchhiker's Guide is hysterical and quirky, but it was the combination too of going, oh, I've got this other power of being able to really make people laugh, which is such a potent thing. And especially learning at a younger age, which is a really sort of like, powerful thing i mean can, was it the combination of those things was it always the funny humor writing you wanted to do or, or you know how did those sort of coalesce i mean it took a long time so i always knew i was funny i didn't know why i mean i i had a lot of a lot of uh issues i mean i you know my wife always said i i wasn't paid enough attention to as a child you know or, um you know who hurt me sometimes so <laughs> but I've always been funny, I but I didn't really think that was something that you would do for a living, like be a comedian. I mean, I tried stand-up for a while, and it was kind of sad and depressing, um, so I stopped doing it. Like, I met all these comedians. I'd go to the open mics, and they were all just the saddest people. And not just sad, but kind of the kind of people you just would not want to be around. You assume their, their apartments were filthy and... Um, it was not appealing. Um, so I didn't never really knew that that was something you could do. It was just something, it was just a way that I was. And part of it too, I think was probably would blame Christianity. I mean, I do, I go to church and, you know, um, no church that, that wants me to say its name out loud on the internet, but the churches I grew up in, uh, and were, were all very earnest, uh, faithful churches, but, Definitely grew up being told that uh, humor was less than. It was definitely something that should be controlled and you had to be very careful with it. So humor by its sort of very nature is it's transgressive. And transgression is a bad thing if you're a religious person or if you want to be a moral person. And so for me, that always felt like a very secret, dirty thing that I could do. It was like, I had a party trick, you know, and but I could not do it in front of nice people. Um, that's what it felt like. And so the writing was very separate from that. The, my love of literature, you know, I fell in love with literature long before I found a funny book. It was this desire in, in one sense, you know, that literature was an escape. It was a way to know the world. It was it was both an escape and kind of like this nosedive into the world. I mean, I, I think I have autistic tendencies. I think, you know, I mean, everybody's cool to be on the spectrum these days. You get your own, you know, show and your own book and whatnot. Uh, is this an autism podcast? I should ask. <laughs> We've flirted with it, and this may be the this may be the one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll tell them it's called Dadville. I feel like. For me, experiencing the world like immediately was very, um, I, it just didn't feel as real as when I put it through something else, an imaginative filter. Um, I remember, you know, when I started reading books, I would walk into a store and I would narrate myself entering the store. You know, he entered the store, you know, the doors parted, you know, because it was a grocery store and they had doors like that. And and that almost made it realer. If I, if I could understand if I could talk to myself about what was happening and that's what a book was, it's talking to you about some, so it's like two worlds kind of interacting. And so 
I, those were separate things, the humor and then that. And trying to get those things married was sort of the story of my my profession is how do I do that? Should I write things that are serious? Should I write things that are funny? Is I didn't, you know, I mean, I can look back and say, of course I should be writing funny things because that's how I am. Like I got a buddy in, in Vicksburg, Mississippi. He can, he's so smart. He can fix anything. He talks just like this. And he said, uh, he said, I said, man, I don't want to be a Southern writer. And he goes, Oh, Harrison, uh, I don't, I, I think anything you write is going to be Southern, man. I was like, well, I was like, well, <laughs> well that, cause that's what you are, man. You, you funny. And anything you write is going to be funny. And I was like, well, I think he's right. And like, so now like, you know, I, if I write a eulogy, if I write like anything I write, it's going to be kind of funny because that's just me like being me. It's, right. it's so yeah. clear now. But when I was 18, 25, that was not clear at all. I thought my humor would like, I was writing yesterday uh, and I was quoting the book of Isaiah, you know, or maybe it's Psalms or both. He will make straight things crooked. And um, I was writing about this idea. And I think this was a problem growing up. Is it like, was my humor straight or was it crooked? I didn't know which it was. And uh, a lot of people will tell you, and not just religious fanatics, people will tell you like humor is a sign of something wrong with you. It's something it's hiding. It's defensive. Um, you know, I say in, in my second book, you know, every time I would be, you know, doing interviews and people would say, are funny people just sad inside, you know, and that's where I realized like, oh, wait, yes, they are sad inside because everybody is sad inside, especially Terry Gross, because she's not funny. Like, of course she's sad. At least I have something I can do with it. I've talked to you guys, you know, um, now, and I know that y'all are funny people and like, at least funny people can do something with their, with their pain. You know, you can obviously play instruments and be a puppeteer or something too, I guess. All that to say, marrying the humor and the writing was not easy. And because humor makes writing silly and dates it and makes it sort of feel fluffy and cotton candy. Um, but too much seriousness uh, can also ruin a story and make it too solemn. And so I, that's my life's journey, marrying those two things. You, you know, I, I, I've told this story before, but I did a string of stand-up shows. So basically, I did like a practice run of like seven stand-up shows three years ago. They were just stand-up, like an hour long, no guitar. But that was in preparation for a tour I did where I did 45 minutes of music a break and then 45 minutes of stand up and it was so much fun but something that really really messed with me in the best way is i'd done a show in chicago got done a friend brought a friend back to hang after the show and we're kind of talking and the, and the woman said hey um man that show really blessed me and i was like what do you mean and she was like well i mean that it just really blessed me and i was like completely sincere i was like how can that bless you and she said well i had a terrible day terrible day bad day at work i come here i laughed really hard i feel better like serotonin whatever got released in my brain i don't feel bad anymore i get to go home to my kids hug them be excited to see them and it was a massive paradigm shift for me because i think like you i i've always enjoyed being funny i just didn't know the value of it and i think when she said that it was a massive moment for me it was like this really does have it can change someone's day genuinely. Kim, your chemical response to how you feel when you laugh 
like resets all these weird things in your brain, releases different chemicals. So that was a that was a moment for me too of just kind of going like, oh, this is not just. A, I love what you said, party trick, you know, because John is hysterical too. These aren't things that are like, oh, you just kind of do it, and people are like kind of, like people enjoy laughing. They enjoy the feeling. I mean, that's why I've, one of the reasons I've loved these two books is like it's fun to laugh. It's, it, you know, it makes, it makes day better. So it is, it, it is funny. I think so valuable. I love what you said about how, when you realize there's this actual quality, there's a, there's a, um, a value attached to it. That's more than like, Hey, Hey, yeah, uh, come over here. Tell me, tell me that story about the bandana <laughs> that you thought was a snake out there. And you're like, okay. Uh, <laughs> that was funny. It wasn't a snake. Y'all listen. No, he thought that bandana <laughs> was a snake. I mean, I mean, well, when I've, when I have read, uh, world's largest man there is like there's two things happening right there's the it's like there's a there's a really honest serious real story being told through humor and i think it's kind of what you're saying with that quote like i told them the truth and they laughed which is what people do when you t- when you say the truth because there's like an uncomfortable vulnerability there and it's like it's so funny that that humor in you know like you were saying in your in your upbringing humor had this sort of negative connotation to it maybe because of its irreverence or it's like it's not taking things seriously but i don't know if you told this story in this book without the humor i don't know it's maybe too real do you know what i mean like it's the humor gives it to me in a way that like i can hear the truth of it even even better you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to hear a story about, you know, yeah, my, my dad whipped me and beat me with a belt. <laughs> I mean, the world has enough of those of those stories. People don't realize that, like, that everything that happens is funny. Everything that yeah. happens. And it might take, you know, they, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. It might take a few years before it be funny. Um, and, and there's something about that that's... Um, important for people to know you know we take ourselves way too seriously mm-hmm. funny people take themselves i think more seriously than non-funny people you know like we get our feelings hurt so quickly we are so defensive well it's funny because dave when you said <laughs> that you're reading you started reading his book and on page three you're you're laughing and i immediately thought and the, the three of us know this the artist's brain immediately goes okay what was wrong with the first two pages like wow because i was really i was trying from word one to be funny what was what happened <laughs> like really page three huh that's interesting okay start on page three um i told my one of my daughters last night um or two nights ago i have a 10 12 and 14 year old daughter now and my 14 year old um is perfectly and kind She's like perfect score on the national Latin exam. My 12 year old uh, wants to marry Satan. Um, she's full of demons and she's the creative one too. So she gets her feelings hurt and she slams every door in the house and she slammed a door. And um, well, we were talking a little bit later about Christmas. I don't know how it came up, um, but I said, I know what I'm getting you. Um, and she said, what? And I said, I'm going to get you a new door um, so you can have a new one to slam since you've slammed all of the other doors. Uh, and she was <laughs> start crying. And then she went through the house looking for a door that she hadn't slammed yet. And then she started <laughs> all of the doors. And she's also the funniest one in the house, but she's also the one who gets her feelings hurt the quickest. 
which is to say humans are given to solemnity and to pride and humor uh, corrects that. It's a corrective. Now, if you, if you're too on the nose about it, if you, if you, you can't sit here and say humor makes us better people, uh, theorists can say that we can say that on a podcast when you're creating, you obviously can't be thinking about that. You are just trying to go to the nerve, to the exposure. You can edit the pain. And I mean, you ha- you don't want, it's when you learn how to play the guitar, you know, you can make good music with it or, you know, you can make very bad music with it. As we all know when you're funny, you can do good things with that or you can hurt people's feelings and be cynical and always be tearing down. You have to tear some things down, but not everything. And so you can fix that in the editing. That's what's so, um, so good about it and so hard about it. I play the drums, but I can't read music. I mean, I tried reading like, you know, Buddy Rich's, you know, drum, you know, drum music and, but I don't do amphetamines anymore. And so that was really hard to do. uh, (laughs) But learning. So I, when I play, I'm not thinking at all. I'm just playing what feels right. And I could be better if I learned music, but I'm not a professional drummer. It's fine. I don't need to learn music, but with writing, I did want to write professionally. And so I had to break down the thing that happens naturally and understand it. And you can kill a thing if you do that. Uh, and that's why, took, that's why it took so long is breaking it down and like, wait, why am I laughing at that? Like, it's like breaking down the sexual act between a man and a woman. Like you can do that. Uh, and hopefully it will make you better and not a criminal or a person. <laughs> Um, but it might help. That's a, that's a tight wire. To, yeah, it is. Walk. That's what he said. There, there is this fascinating thing. You nailed it. I mean, John and I write songs for other people too, you know, so not just for ourselves, which you try to keep in that, like you said, that space that feels natural and you're not overthinking it. But it is weird when you get into a space where you become a professional songwriter. So people are coming to you for songs they can sing and record. And you, you kind of have to do this little thing where you're like, okay, I have to get a little cerebral here. What kind of music do they like? What kind of music have they put out? What oh they tend to do major verses and minor? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Oh, they don't sing higher than this key. Okay, get, that's one of the lessons I learned in the last decade of my life is there's this there is a line you can get to, but when you cross it, everything flips over upside down. Mm-hmm. You know where it's no longer heartfelt. It's no longer inspired. Mm-hmm. It's no longer you're just doing math. Which sadly, and you know this well in the writing world too, that stuff still sells. I mean, math, math sells, you know, a lot of radio hits are math. And so, but for me, to your point, I think that's very true. You have to kind of navigate that carefully so that you don't turn into like, oh, well, that's just a form. Everything's a formula. Just put A plus B equals C. And then that's what makes something funny. It's like, well, yeah. maybe. Yeah. But you like, want to play around with the sound. I mean, think of all the, the great musicians that you guys love. Their albums all sound probably very different. And it sounds so natural to us going back and listening to, you know, the Beatles records or Led Zeppelin records. And it sounds so natural, like it's all of a piece. But then if you think about the the change from Zeppelin two to Zeppelin three, you know, from like all these like heavy duty cannon fire drums and bass to like acoustic guitars and like weird British folk music, like about Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) What were they smoking? But when you listen to it, it like it seems so natural to us. But can you imagine? Like at some point, you have to be like, "All right, now we're going to do something very different. We're not going to keep doing the same thing. We want to keep messing it up and changing it up." And some bands do it successfully, and some don't. 
but you have to, I mean, I'm always trying to surprise myself and there were definitely some tricks in the first book that I tried to undo in the second book and do them differently. I'm doing things that feel kind of unnatural in the third book, but that I think will, might keep the audience um, off balance enough that they will, it, it will continue to be funny because they've seen that before. But then obviously, you know, Zeppelin still kept playing, you know, good times, bad times. And so every now and then you still reach back and you're like, ah, I still got it. Here's the countdown. Yeah, you know, totally. you still do that. But it is exciting to get to that point where you're trying new ways of doing, of creating that magic. I know y'all experience that too. So speaking of your occupation as a writer, and like Dave said earlier, normally we would kind of go back and we would give some kind of, you would talk about your childhood and all that kind of stuff. But in, in this situation, everyone just needs to go out and buy Harrison Scott Key's books. And because it's, it, we can't sum it up in the next 15 minutes better than Can't you be did good. in your book. It's just so good. Thank you. Um, you described in your book that your, your dad worked a quote shit ass job. So he had this terrible job, but he also said he was lucky to have it. So every day he's, he's waking up and going and doing this like grind of a job. Right. So what did that, what did that like communicate to you? Like what effect did that have on you growing up, seeing that day in and day out? And also now that you are a writer and a creative, how does that affect you? Like given the fact that you have this job that is, that you're passionate about, it comes naturally to you. You know, I'm, I'm a musician. I just come back here to my little studio and I just make up songs. Right. That's what I did. But growing up, I saw my dad, you know, working a, a grind of a job. He wasn't, you know, he was a musician as well, but his job was something else. His job was this thing that was inconvenient. And, and I'm not saying my dad doesn't, you know, love his job, but he's grateful for this thing that is a grind. So how does that affect you now as a creative? Well, I'm never sad anymore. I'm just kidding. I'm sad all the time. <laughs> right now. Um, I mean, yeah, so there are a lot of sort of cliches and obvious uh, truisms here. Like, obviously, every job is a grind. Every, you know, everything right. is hard. Life right. is hard. You know, rich people are sad, just like poor people are and vice versa. I think for me, it was very formative to see two things. My father felt like he had to work the grind of a job because he did not have an education. Um, and he was always pushing me. He, he knew I was intelligent and he was always pushing me to make sure I got a degree. And which is funny because it seems it's just such an obvious thing to most families now to do that. I, I have four degrees now because my father hit me so hard with that over and over again. And I had those four degrees before I realized, oh, maybe it was my pain that caused me to get all these degrees. That doesn't mean it's wrong to have them. I mean, I get paid more because of them. But that was one thing that if you put a little work in early, um, you will have benefits later. And my father's very honest regret as, as conventional and stereotypically a Southern man as he was, he was not afraid to show regret in front of his son. And when he showed me that he regretted not being smarter when he was younger about his time and being foolish, 
that uh, that really taught me a lesson, which is put the work in early so you won't be as unhappy later. And that is a, that's a true thing. That's a good lesson. The other thing is uh, he wasn't passionate about his work um, and he seemed really sad when he had to go and he seemed really happy when he got home. And he, I think that's why he loved to hunt and fish so much. And in some ways, him coaching football and baseball and hunting and fishing, these things became more important to him as he got older because that was his only happy time. And I remember thinking how awful it must be to be so unhappy, like for eight or nine hours of the day. And so I, I would, I wanted, I felt very strongly that I should choose a career that I was excited about. Now, I was naive. So obviously, you know, when you, when you have a job you don't care much about, it's pretty easy to come home and just not think about it. When you're an artist, you never clock out. You're always thinking about it. That's its own demon. You know, yeah, that's yeah. hard. That's so hard. And that's its own challenge. Um, and I'm sure that my children will all be like, you know what? I think I want like a nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that they're all thinking that I asked my oldest, I'm like, so are you thinking about SCAD? Are you thinking about writing? You love to read, I know. And she was like, no, not really, you know, because she sees me back here writing at 5 a.m. and, you know, 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. And, you yeah. know, if the power goes out, they're like, let's play a game. I'm like, I have a story to work on, guys. Who do you think pays for the electricity, you know? So whatever you experience, obviously, you're going to kind of go to the flip side of that. But that definitely me as a boy that taught me his sadness. I didn't want to be sad going to work. And you know what, when it's going well, it is the best drug out there. Totally. When the writing is going well. So, and with the world's largest man, do you feel like you wrote that book? Cause so much of it is, is about your relationship with your dad. Would you say that you wrote that book out of an understanding of your relationship with your dad? Or would you say you just started writing that book and then you discovered from writing it? your relationship with your dad and all these things. You know what I mean? I definitely say B. It was B. Um, yeah. I used to get really frustrated when uh, writers or teachers would say, you know, like Flannery O'Connor says, you know, writing is like driving at night. As long as you have your headlights on, you can see right in front of you. That's all you need to know. And that was always so frustrating to me um, because I'm like, well, if you don't have something to say, like, why are you writing? Like, if you don't know where you're going, why are you doing it? And I was always really frustrated by that. And then I realized that, you know, for me, the way it works is, well, I know I want to make people laugh. I know I have that gift. I know I love the way books make me feel and, and that I wanted to find a way to cultivate that gift. And so it really takes two things. You have to have this desire you have to know kind of like your divining rod, like there's something there, but you don't have to know what it is yet, but you do have to know something is there. Um, for me, uh, if I tell a story over and over again, um, or if I remember and think of a story over and over again, that means there's something there. I don't have to know what yet. Now, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have thought that I had to know what to start writing it, but that's, you, you only discover it in the making of it. And so I finally figured out what O'Connor was saying with that quote. Like I knew that, um, well, I'll give you an example. Um, so one 
one Christmas break in college, I uh, decided to work at a fireworks stand. I would be the manager of the largest fireworks stand in the murder capital of Mississippi. And I told that story. I lived in a tiny little trailer next to a porta potty. It was in the parking lot. It had been, it was an abandoned truck stop, and it was in a parking lot next to a flop house, next to a whorehouse uh, on Highway 80 in Jackson, Mississippi. I was 20 years old, and I had a shotgun and a pistol, and I had about $100,000 worth of fireworks, and at any given time, about $10,000 in cash at the fireworks stand. And I've told that story, and I spent Christmas alone with a hot plate eating Campbell's Chunky Soup and smoking cigarettes out by the bottle rocket display, <laughs> and... <laughs> And it was so cold, and I had like two CDs. I had like uh, like a Dukes of Dixieland Jazz Christmas, and then like Zeppelin Four or something. And I've told that story over and over again. So I know that there's something there. Now, what is the story? I don't know yet. I know I'm going to write. I'm going to write that story sometime in the next year. Now, it sounds funny enough, right? Like, oh, that's weird. There's a lot of potential for comedy there. But I still don't know why I did that. And when I write it, I'm going to figure it out. Why did I agree to do yeah. that? And I may not figure the whole thing out, but I'll come up with some pretty good ideas. Is it because I felt like my life didn't have enough risk in it? Is it because I was tired of people? Maybe it was Christmas. Maybe I was wanting to tell my family, you don't matter to me anymore. I'm going to spend Christmas in a trailer where I'll probably get murdered. That's how little I cared. And so in, in the writing, I will figure out why I did that. And that's what happened with this book. I knew that there was something there. I knew that it was a story about the South and my father, all the stuff that I hated and loved about the South, all wrapped up in him. I knew that, but I didn't quite know what. And the writing is the figuring out. And if you can show the reader you doing the work and figuring it out as it's happening, you'll they'll be on that journey with you. It's a new year, which means New Year's resolutions. So if everything goes right, I'll have an eight-pack in three to five days, maybe a month. <laughs> we all know that's not going to happen, but you know what can happen? Eating better and healthier. Luckily, today's sponsor, ButcherBox, makes that super easy. ButcherBox is a meat delivery subscription that sends you a box of the highest quality meat for a better price than the grocery store. ButcherBox is a no-brainer. It's the best meat shipped right to your door, which means one less trip to the grocer. Options like 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and much, much more. ButcherBox makes me look like a better griller just because of the high-quality meat they provide. Even better is ButcherBox is affordable and convenient. With ButcherBox, you get the highest-quality meat for around 6 bucks a meal. They even give you free shipping nationwide except for Alaska and Hawaii. Start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up. That includes one pork butt, giggle giggle, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com forward slash dadville. That's butcherbox.com forward slash dadville. Get you some meat. Dum, 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 dum
Were you surprised at what you realized by the end of that book? Like, or did you kind of see it coming or, you know, your point, you're kind of working it out real time. You know, it's jazz. You're kind of in there throwing things around, seeing what happens. But was there a moment where at the end of it, you sort of sat there and went, oh my gosh, like, this is how I feel about this. Yeah. And were there situations where you were like, no, 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 no. I, I knew how I felt about that. And I don't want to have to switch to some new way of understanding it. Right. Yeah. I mean, but it was all of that. I mean, I knew, for example, a lot of these stories in that first book were going to be addressing like the stories that I remembered. So the stories that were important, I just had to figure out why they were important and how they were all connected. Like the story of my father coaching the all black baseball team where I was, you know, the mascot, the story of my father making me cheat in the football game. The, the story of the time that I, you know, I destroyed this deer. I, I shot this deer in the face. It was so awful, <laughs> so awful. And like, I didn't tell that story a lot, but it stayed with me. I, I couldn't shake that story. So I knew I was going to sort of attack it from all these angles. And I knew that it would probably come to a place where I would have to decide what I felt about my dad now. And I just didn't. Yeah. And I knew that it was probably going to be uh, a place of uh, grace and and some sort of happy, positive note. But I didn't quite know what. And I didn't know how much I was going to say about how sad he made me. So a lot of things happened at the very end of the writing of the book. So my father died um, about three months before I finished it. And so I was literally on like, you know, two chapters from the end. So that was weird, right? He had just moved to Savannah and um, he had been here for three weeks and then he died. And so literally I'm like, it threw the entire book into, into possible failure. So I call him, you know, I'm like grieving my dad. I'm, I'm writing a eulogy and trying to finish this book at a deadline of that summer. And he died in May. And I was like, how do I write a, you know, a funny book about a sad thing? And, and how, do, how do I feel about my dad that he's now dead? I mean, anybody whose parent died, like you do a lot of reckoning in that in the year or three after they pass away. And so I had a last chapter sort of mapped out. And so when he died, you know, I like stopped the book. I wrote this eulogy. It was very funny and very sad. Um, and the eulogy really like, it was like, um, it was like I had taken the comedy of the book and just like dropped it in a bucket of indigo and just, it colored everything. The sadness started to color everything. And so I delivered the eulogy and I'm like bawling and I'm laughing and it was so sad and so funny and sweet and hard. And I remember thinking, okay, and it felt kind of weird to think this because it felt so um, hoarse. I was like, I think the eulogy might be the final chapter. You know, my father dies and and I put the eulogy in there. And so I tried to do that. I just dropped it in. I was like, oh, this is my father's last gift to me. And I dropped it in there and and it didn't work. Something about it didn't work at all. Um, And so I took the tone of the eulogy of like, I was going to make the reader laugh so hard and then just punch them in the stomach just because that's what it felt like. As I was sitting there writing, 
I was like, I have to write the book so that when people read it at the end, they are feeling and crying the way I am crying right now. And I wrote it and it, man, that last chapter, that was like one draft. And that last chapter is like, I'll never write anything as good as that last chapter. I mean, it was so perfect. Mm. And I, and what happened was that when I went back to finish, kind of reread the whole book, I went out to Montauk for a month and stayed, had a residency out there. And I just took the whole book and I was just going to read it one last time before I gave it to my editor in New York. And with that indigo started to seep out in all these places throughout the book. And I realized, oh, I need to prepare the reader for this sadness. And so those little sad moments throughout, are those are little teases and light motif notes to let the reader know, even though they don't know it consciously, like, oh, this, this guy is grieving. This is a sad book. And, you, and if you go back and read the last chapter, the last paragraph of the first chapter, or even the, the little forward where that like one page about my mom and I having a conversation about me being molested, like you can see there's like sad, like rivers of sadness under that stuff. And when I put that there, and even it, it makes me cry just thinking about it because it's that's how life is, right? It's like like I cannot stand my family, and as soon as I go to work, I miss them. What is that? <laughs> I can't stand them, and I'm like, all right, Harrison. Like I'm so nice to my wife on text. I'm so nice to her, and then I get home, and I'm like, you know, like get away. <laughs> like she, she came to my office. And said that she had lost 10 pounds. And I said, from where? That's so, so, it's so cruel. But then, and so like, I'm trying to, like, how do you marry those two? The sadness and the nostalgia and the longing and then just the sort of pain and comedy of being around other people. So I like that. So the answer is B. I, I discovered that how I felt only in writing it. Are there things that you, like you say, if I have a story that I keep telling myself, I know there's something there. There's some reason for it. So then once you examine all this stuff and and then you write about it, are there things that you find yourself post writing this book that you don't, that you've kind of let go of? And you're like, hey, I never noticed how I always used to think about this, whatever, the, the deer story. Now it's like it's gone. I've released it. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it, it's it's cool. It's like therapy. Yeah, it's it's exactly like therapy. And I used to think that was such a crock and it's so true. Um, so it's a little sad and it's it's a little cool. The sad part is that um, I do feel like the stories are a little more um, in a shadow box on the wall now and less inside of me. Um, and so I don't think about them as much. Um and I'll go back and sometimes reread passages. And I mean, when I went, you know, I went on like a epic three year book tour for this first book. And it really was like, it was like a farewell tour to my dad. I mean, every, every night I'm getting up and I'm showing photos of him and him and me. And I'm reading these stories that people were hearing for the first time. And it was very sweet. It was very special. I felt like my father and his humor were with me on my tour. And that was amazing. Um, but there, it's a little sad because I've moved on a little bit and, and I'm a different person now. And so that's good. The cool part is that I'm healed a little bit from a lot of that trauma too, because of the therapeutic aspect of sharing it and getting it out there and people going, Oh my gosh, my dad did that to me. And I don't know if I should hate him either. And I'm like, Oh, let's have a hug, I guess. I don't know. 
<laughs> the thing that is so cool uh, about the second book, um, you know, is obviously they have themes of your family that sort of stay in there. The thing that I'm always drawn to in any kind of conversation or book, or especially from people who can enunciate it well, is this dilemma of of dreams, of like chasing your dreams. You know, my dad said one time, it's like uh, a dream is kind of like a tire that a dog is chasing. What happens when he catches it? You know, I'm just always fascinated by anybody that's giving a thought to like, what is a dream? How do you get the dream? But then, but then the other really gnarly side, which is the how underprepared I think most of us are for success. Like the, it's just really hard to understand what that does, what it doesn't do you know, uh, uh, what it does to your brain and how, and all these things. And so one of the things that I enjoyed so much that sort of snuck up on me because I, I didn't really know what the book was going to be about was that you just do this incredible job of sort of spelunking that, you know, of really honestly opening your brain and heart to like, here's what I was expecting. Here's what I wanted with my life. And then holy crap, I got it. But then there's part B of getting it where you got to go work it and then seeing the crowds and how they were. It, 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 John, and I talked about this. It mirrors so much of our career. I mean, you do this work, you make the record slash book and then you go out. You know, that's the, the crazy thing about a book tour is it's like a music tour. You know, you're kind of doing it in front of people. You're going like, man, they didn't respond. That was the funny part. But yet they laughed two sentences afterwards, right. you know, or you're, pl- you know, you're playing the song and you're like, the bridge is where I'm going to get them. And everybody's like, yeah. And then the last course that's a down course, you're, everybody's like, yeah, oh, that was weird. <laughs> okay, whatever. You know, but I think th- there were so many things in the book that, that I wanted to kind of give a little, uh, have some time to kind of address for a second. It's like, you have this quote, the problem with your dream coming true is you never quite know uh, when it happens. It's right there in the non-finite verb form of dreams coming true. Nobody knows when the moment actually occurs. And I think there's something, I have a real passion. I'm so passionate about this with my younger friends who get into music um, uh, or, or any really, any creative endeavor is like, that is the truth. I mean, you nailed it. And I think I have to guard, John and I spend so much time talking about this to each other and just our hangouts is like, you really have to guard against this thing about, this unsatisfaction, this lack of like, why is it not happening? Or did it already happen? It's all gone. Or have I not gotten there yet? Um, which I thought you articulated so, so well in that quote, like you, you don't know when it happens. You don't know it has it happened. Is it happening now? Is it about, <laughs> is it always happening? Well, <laughs> you know, there, like there it is. <laughs> you think it's starting and it hasn't even started yet. <laughs> then, <laughs> then it's happening. And then you want it to be done. <laughs> <laughs> you get the whole foots in the duck. <laughs> so as you're dealing with this real time in the book, and maybe even, you know, now as you're working on your next book, what do you feel like you're still learning about that? Like what, what are sort of the things you're kind of taking away from how to do this career where you're always sort of chasing a dream or you've, have you gotten it yet? Is it going to be the next thing? You know, even to your point about your, your, you know, your, your uh, agent saying, you know, this is the breakout. The next one's the breakout. And you're like, well, I kind of feel like I nailed the first. We won, a, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it, it is. I mean, it's strange because you don't want to seem ungrateful, you know, like, oh, gosh, you know, I mean, you, you're you on this journey. And so you're still you. You still experience one second, one day at a time, just like everybody else. But to some people, it looks like your life should be perfect. But you've, you're there. You've achieved things that seem so impossible to people that you meet. And so it's important to both remember that and also honor the fact that you're just a miserable flea, you know, on the back of the planet, you know? So the one is so like 
complaining about book tour. Like I had to find a way to make sure that when I complained about my fame, I didn't seem ungrateful for it, which, you know, to your point, John, like I could talk about, you know, death and violence and blood if I made it funny. Well, I can figure out a way to talk about ingratitude if I can make it funny, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's one, that's one challenge. I think when you experience success, you do have some authority and some knowledge of how you got to this point. And when you go on a tour or you speak to a group or people pay you money to write songs or write books, um, you speak with some authority and some wisdom and experience. Um, but you cannot create in that same mindset uh, or it, you will create just a really bad parody of the stuff that got you there. That goes back to the point of like the really great artists. And I'm talking about, you know, people who are alive and making, making music and films and books today and in our lifetimes, you have to get more vulnerable as you go up this sort of ladder of success. The vulnerability becomes the thing you are after even more. And I mean, that's why uh, we all love and are confused by somebody like Kanye West because he's on that journey of trying to both enjoy the fame and success. And I'm thinking about like some of his previous albums. He's trying, he's like both in it, but he's also understanding that he has to be his canvas. He has to figure it out. And he's doing that in front of everybody. And so what he's doing is sort of a very public uh, version of what every artist has to do, which is like, yeah. who am I now? Now, who am I? And, and how can you keep doubting it? So like, I'm like, all right, if I take away, like I have some tricks with uh, how to make a sentence funny. I have some things I do that I just, I know how to do it. And so with this current book, I'm like, all right, you're not going to get to use any of those. Can you still be funny without that? Is your funny, maybe it's not technical. Maybe it's something metaphysical that you still haven't quite figured out. And so when you go back and look at an album, when two albums are very different, you keep going with the Kanye example. I mean, I don't know if, I'm sure somebody wrote about this, but like his album, 808s and Heartbreak, there, there are no bad words in that record. It's like the only rap album that, you know, made the charts that has no bad words in it. I'm he had to have done that on purpose. He had to have consciously said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to see if I can still make this an album of me without that. And it probably pushed him into some weird places, some auto-tune caverns that he never escaped from. But it also, but it also made him do some cool stuff, right? So, I, so I'm yeah. trying that right now with this book. How can I um, continue to be vulnerable? I was really vulnerable before success. I, I was a piece of crap. Nobody cared about. Nobody gave, ever given me money for a story. So it was really easy to be raw and honest and all of that. So now, as I as I have have success, and if you look at my website, I mean, if you look on my my resume, it looks like I've achieved everything that anybody would ever want to achieve. But I feel like I've only just got in there. And when people say that, you're like, oh, okay, you're like, what's next? But I mean, man, like when the Stones made Exile on Main Street. Like they felt like everybody in the music industry hated them. That's where that title came from. They were on Main Street, the most popular or one of the most popular bands in the world, and they still felt like they didn't belong. And so isn't that what we're all experiencing? So the question is, you don't want to channel that into your PR. You want to channel that into your work. And that's the key to do that. You know, th this is the thing that is fascinating about success to me. And you just nailed it. 
with, with the Rolling Stones and what you're saying before. I, I told somebody the other day, I was speaking to this group of kind of younger artists, and I said, here's the thing about success. People, when you are really good at something and you're successful, society takes you and they put, put you up on a hill and they go, you deserve to be over there. Like you're kind of, you're better than us, right? And then what they do every day is they build a wall between you and them. They build it. You don't build it. You're not even anymore trying to prove you're different. They're doing it for you. And they go, hey, we, we sh- you should build a little higher wall because like, man, you've got a gift and we want to keep you protected. And, you know, and I told them, I was like, I think the work we have to do is every morning you have to get up and tear the wall down because you're not different. Because I think that the the craziest thing about success is how lonely it makes you because the world and they just put you over there. You know, it's like that's fame. It's and so it's weird to your exact point. We have to do this work as as creatives trying to build common things. You don't want people to read your book and think you're so different and special. They want you want them to read your book and go, I, I laugh because it resonates. That's my life, too. I've had that moment. I've had this song makes me feel how I feel. That's one of the things that's so crazy about success, too, is to your point is people already think you're different. You're on the book tour. You got the book tour. You got the book out. It won the third or what? Like, you're so different. You're doing it. And and I think that's the thing that is one of the sneaky things about success that you have to really be disciplined about is, is exactly your point. You know, I was listening to this. One of the best podcasts on this I've ever listened to, Rick Rubin had Andre 3000 on. Uh, on break on record, it is to me required listening because Andre 3000 speaks so much about that. And one of the things he says is once the attention is on that world, then the world goes away. Like once you turn your eye to the create and you're really focusing on it, it disappears. He also says, you know, all we're wanting is to make music and play with your friends like you were when you were a kid. Like that's, if you can get to that place to your point, you know, about how you kind of make that work, you know, how can I just get in there and not take all the stuff that I would tell PR and, you know, just, I got to write and, and let, you know, but it, it's a fascinating discipline that to your point, you talk about that so much in the book that you kind of learn these new things you have to do or not think or think once things start actually working, which you just don't see coming. Nobody sits you down and goes like, before you do this book tour, here's a few things that you're going to feel that you've never felt before yeah. Yeah. that you actually worked to feel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think, I mean, keeping humble is important for anybody. Um, but yeah, when people are telling you how amazing you are and, you know, um, when you have a bio, I don't know if y'all know this, most people don't have bios. <laughs> like, it's so strange. It's so fascinating. I mean, because you, you have to be your own PR person for m- most of your life when you're creative up until you make it. So you, you, you have to put on that little weird hat. I'll put on, I got a PR hat. Okay. My PR hat. <laughs> y'all heard about Harrison King? Um, <laughs> let me tell y'all something. You have, you know, you're promoting yourself. So when I was writing my first book proposal or when you're pitching a story to a magazine, you're like, Harrison is awesome. You know, like you, you are trying to sort of, you're trying to, to project the imaginary wall of awesomeness. So people will imagine that you could be on the other side of it so that they will then put you there. And then as soon as that happens, you have to be like, what wall? There's no wall. Regular people. So you have to flip it. And, you know, for me, I have, you know, with three daughters and a wife and a mom down the street, like it's not hard to, they tear my wall down for me every day 
so that that's an important piece of it. You know, um, I ride my bike to the office and I almost get run over by a University of Georgia fan every day. I have a puppy who will come in here and eat all of my books. Um, little things like that definitely keep you a little more ground. I cut my own grass. And one of the reasons I love to cut my own grass, in addition to not having enough money to pay for landscaping, is that I'm like, you know what? I, I can't get too far away from the earth. If I'm out, because I, when I was on book tour, I didn't go into my yard for like five years. I don't. I, I would see it from the window and driving away. I'd be like, "Look at that yard! How did it get like that? Somebody, somebody <laughs> cut that? Who cut that? They're good." And then I'm like, "You know what? Like that actually untethered me from my life. So now, like cutting my grass is a little bit like keeping me tethered a little bit to reality. About, uh, yeah, you know, I'll get you know Instagram messaged and somebody's like, "Oh my gosh, your book is in my thesis. I wrote my thesis on your book, you know," and I'm like that's great. I just bought some new underwear. You know, like, how do you, what do you say to that person? So just keeping it real. I mean, it's nice to have, you know, famous friends like you guys and, and to have people that I can share my work with and talk. I mean, I've got friends that I've never even met, but we talk about our work online together and we talk on the phone about it. And it's so nice because they're all kind of in the same place. Having a semi-famous persona online but then they're just a real person and they're trying to make great work and keep, they just want to keep playing music with their friends. Um, that has really helped a lot. Having those people in my life, uh, that we can just like, that, there's no wow factor at all. when We talk to each other. It's great. This is corny. This is cheesy, but I, I do have a cross tattooed on my arm. So I'm required to say this, um, get out. Like what you really want, what's underneath all of it is I, you want God to tell you that you're valuable. Like the same, way that I want my dad to tell you, to tell me that I'm valuable, the same way that I want people of authority and that I hold in high regard to say I'm valuable. So the way that I want it, I want this to play out with, with everyone is like, we discovered your, your book, your first book, uh, on vacation, Dave and I, with our families, we're on vacation. Dave's reading this book and he's cracking up every five seconds. And then he, when he's done with it, starting I read page it three. <laughs> starting on page uh, the first two pages. You were like dead silent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I read it and it's uh, so then Dave and I are, you're on this pedestal for us, you know, and it's so cool. And Dave DMs you on Instagram and you write back and then I DM and you write back and like, we're making this connection with this amazing author that we've just written, read this book. And then what, what you want to happen is what happened in your second book where you talk about, uh, I, I wish we had the quote right in front of me right here, but where you say, you know, you never, they never tell you that, uh, you know, they're going to call and give you this award. And they never tell you that, you know, at the after parties, um, someone from the SNL is going to be there and they're going to want to get your number. And they never tell you how, you know, they, they want to collaborate with you and et cetera, et cetera. And they never tell you that because that's not what happens. And what, and then you describe how, like, you know, after you get the award, and then next thing you know, you and your wife are standing on the street, and you're like, Well, should we, you hungry? Should we go get something to? That's saying to me, Yeah, I'm just, we're the same. I want to put you up on a pedestal, and then I want you to tell me, like, no, I'm everything that you're experiencing is what I'm experiencing, and we both have value. And there's so much, I'm so grateful for that vulnerability 
at just as a as one of your many readers, I'm grateful for it because it it means a lot to my life. You know what you said that I, I wrote this down because this resonated. I stood up, introduced myself, and made the mistake of telling him. You're talking about your uh, at the at the like VIP authors hang you went to that year, telling this other author. I was a big fan of his work, which meant we could now never be friends. <laughs> I thought, I can't tell you how much that resonated because it sounds like you, you you love books. Like you probably read books and that's why you're doing what you're doing. I and John are the same way. We, I love music. I It gives me so much joy. And I have had so many moments where I'm writing with somebody or somebody's at my show and I am like geeked. And I have to, I have to go that you got to play this right Barnes. Cause you can go, you can mess this up. Like you could potentially have a friend with someone that you respect. Like you, this guy could be girl, whoever could be someone that's like, Oh man, well let me know. Let's grab some coffee next time. Play this right. Play like don't, because everything in me wants to geek out all the time. I'm like, Oh my gosh, dude, your record that you could, and oh, and they're like, oh, and you can see it. You can see like the, Whoa, they're hiding behind the wall. <laughs> yeah. I, that Because they're like, oh, I'm supposed to go behind the wall now. You brought the wall. Yeah. yeah I thought we were the same. And now I guess it's been good knowing you. I never yeah. want to talk to you again. And I never will. Yeah. Um, one last thing before we talk about some of your dad's stuff. I, I want to ask you, I thought this was so powerful. You talk about William Shakespeare leaving his family to move to London to become William Shakespeare. And, that dilemma is John and I talk about this a lot on this podcast and, and a lot and just in general, but you know, that weird thing, you know, are we taking something away from our kids by doing what we do? Do you have to do this thing where, what is that work-life balance, you know, and, and, you know, living in Nashville, you see this a lot. I mean, you know, this, this dilemma that so many of us walk and try to navigate well, which is how do you do something you love? I say this a lot, but I, 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 one of the things that I try to be careful of is like, I never want my dream to crush my children. Like that's not something they chose. That's something I'm choosing. But at the same time, you have to do things that cause sacrifice or need some, there's gonna be some tension, you know, and, and, but I love that. I thought that was so well said in the William Shakespeare quote. I mean, have you felt that, how do you navigate that with your life and trying to chase this dream while not sort of oppressing your family at the same time? You know, I like to continually remind them that I could be the greatest writer of my generation, but that I I've chosen not to be that because I love it. <laughs> that puts it on them, <laughs> right? Um, Just genius. You know, part of it is um, treating it a little bit like a job. Like, well, if this was a normal job. Would I do this right now or not? Because within the wall, within that wall of fame, there's a little wall between you and your family sometimes that you need mm. to put them on the other side. Um, you know, part of that sort of last quarter or the last few chapters of, of my second book was realizing that if I involved my family to some degree, I could, my family could actually change the character of my life at that point. So involved, so taking my family on the road, taking them to shows and readings. And all of a sudden when I did that, it flipped the whole scene and it became about them in a good way. So like we went to Tallahassee for a big book festival a few years ago, I guess it was in April. And I took my children and I don't know if you've been to Tallahassee. I don't know if you have any listeners there. It, it's a fine town. Um, they call it Tallahassee. There are a lot of pawn shops. 
Florida State is there, but it's also it's not a very beautiful town as Florida goes. So we went and we had a great time and it was a fantastic book festival. But my children, what they remembered are the pawn shops and how every time we went to the hot tub, there were Band-Aids in it. Um, and that, that you can't be like a famous author of books when you have children who like, Dad, Dad, when are you going to finish? We want to go to the pawn shop again. We want to see the gun. You know? <laughs> like that, that made it so cool to me. And so that was one answer to the solution was if I, if I do have to work for my, um, you know, go on tour, whatever, go to New York, um, then bring my family, make it harder for their sake, because they're sort of the reason that I'm here. You know, like uh, the whole time we've been talking, I've been playing around with this knife. This is my dad's knife. And um, I have a lot of anxiety during podcast interviews. I'm just kidding. But, you know, my father, he used this knife and you can see on it, where he sharpened it and he did not sharpen it evenly, but he sharpened it a lot because you could tell he used it for things. And I feel like, well, you know, my family is, you know, your family is for love and companionship and for growing and, and enjoying each other's company and for helping each other sort of get through. So why wouldn't I take my family to New York and spend all of my prize money that I haven't even won yet? on <laughs> Like that became the memory. Now, I mean, I've got, I've got the Thurber prize over there and, you know, nobody looks at that, but I look at my family every day. And so part of the answer of like managing that family balance is involving them when you can without it being weird. Like, you know, when, when I'm at a book festival, I'll say, you know, you guys can stay in the hotel if you want, or y'all can come with me. I take my kids to the VIP room and let them have at the, the salami and the Turkey, you know, another piece of it is, uh, them, I think it's important for them to see me work. And because I think it's important for children to see their parents at work and working and stopping working to help with the dog or to help with dinner. Uh, and they, I think it's, and they see my wife working, they see me, they see us stopping, they see us going back to it. I want them to see how committed I am to my work because I want them to know that that's possible. Um, and that they should have work that they're committed to. Um, so I just try to involve them as much as I can. I don't make them read my stuff. Uh, and I definitely, um, uh, if they did, they would hate it. You know, I mean, my, one of my daughters, I caught my daughter looking at my computer and she was going, and I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm reading the story. I was like, it's dumb. It's still dumb. She's like, I know. And she like, walked off. <laughs> like well, bye. Thanks. That's sweet. Like, you're all mean to me. I was like, probably because you have bad taste in literature. <laughs> That's right, folks. It is 2021, which means if you're anything like me, you're trying to somewhat get organized for this new crazy year. Now is the perfect time to check something off your list that you've probably been putting off life insurance. Yay! <laughs> Policy Genius is here to actually help with this. Policy Genius makes it easy for you to compare more than 30 top insurers at once and save over 50% in the process. Plus, there's no hassle because their licensed experts work for you, not the insurance companies. Here's how it works. Head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape if you hit any speed bumps in the process. They promise to take care of everything. Make it the year you finally cross life insurance off your list and get protection for your loved ones. 
So go to policygenius.com to get started and you could save 50% or more by comparing quotes. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Can I say, as you're talking about involving your children in your career, that you did something that I think is genius. I have for a long time had the idea of pulling up all my worst like iTunes reviews, printing them out and having my sweet grandmother read them. And I never did it. And then the other day I found this video that you made that is genius where you have your kids reading all these terrible reviews of your book. That is just so genius. Everyone needs to stop and, and look up this video because it is done so well. I love it. It's so sweet, isn't it? Their little tiny voices, like reading these reviews. And I think it's great where you're like, hey, this this was the intention that I had with with the um with having my grandmother read these reviews. Is like, look, drummer boy sixty five. If you're gonna write that about my album, fine. It's your opinion. That's great. Thank you for taking the time to 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 write it. I'm gonna make you hear it. <laughs> through through the sweet voice of my sweet grandmother. Yes. Whose heart you are breaking real yeah, time. Yeah, I want to I want you to see who you're affecting. Uh, so great. Yeah. Uh, I was we were gonna shoot that that book. It was a book trailer from 2018. Um we were gonna shoot that as a political ad because it was the midterm election. And I was gonna be running for uh for um, author of the United States or something like that. <laughs> then at the last minute, I realized it would be just, it'd be so sad to hear my little, you know, at the time, I think she was six, my youngest to read my sit to hear my six year old read about how, how terrible a father I was, which one of the reviews was about how bad of a father I was. Oh um, so yeah, it worked out. That was, and that was actually on the front that we were members of that church at the time. So they were on the, the front oh, yeah. of our church and people would come by and my mom was actually there. She was behind the camera and she was like, are we done yet? <sighs> this is taking too long. I almost <laughs> made her read some. So you have three daughters, mm-hmm. 10, 12, well, 14, that, I know of. that you know of, right. That, that live in your house. Yeah. So um, I always ask uh, every uh, guest this question. Because I feel like I have something, I have some things that I do as a dad that I know that I, on my worst day, I at least know I do this well. This is my go-to or whatever. This is my thing, like my dad's superpower. So what what would you say is your dad's superpower? I can move objects with my mind. Okay. You too? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not you too. They're too heavy. I can do each member of the band separately though. Sure. Um, sure. Well, they travel separately now anyway. Yeah. So. The Edge is my favorite though. Um, so <laughs> The Edge. What gall to call yourself The Edge. I know it. <laughs> um, all right. Superpower. Probably, I mean, I would say it's either... I can make things an adventure, make things exciting and fun. Getting to the, if, in, to go to the candy store. We have a, a candy store right not far from our house, a couple of miles away. Um, and to go when it's raining and like, you know, my, my wife, she's not into that doing fun things that are adventures are not her jam. She doesn't want to do anything fun. Usually I'm just kidding. She's fun, but not that, and not in that way. Um, so like, 
finding a way to sort of get up to trouble and teach my children how to sort of break the rules a little bit is probably one of the things that I've intentionally tried to do a lot with them. Not breaking the rules to break them, but to show them that like if they can find a way to sort of break out of the mundane and do something that's not maybe normal, like maybe we're going to go get on the roof today. Like most people don't just go get on the roof. There's an element of danger there. Um, definitely riding bikes around Savannah. We ride our bikes all over town, which is so great to see like my kids with me riding bikes and not just, you know, people commuting to work, um, riding bikes in the rain on purpose. Um, I will, uh, probably the redneck in me, but we will go, um, I will let them drive the truck and, and sit in my lap and drive the truck around the park near our house. And by playing, you know, David Allen Coe really loud and, you know, two of them are hanging out of the sunroof. That's such a redneck thing. But like and all the all the soccer moms at the park are like calling 911 while we're driving around and just teaching them how to drive, you know, and we call that a family ride. We uh, will do a family ride around the neighborhood where they drive. And the 14 year old is now about ready to just sit in the driver's seat without me. But just stuff like that that shows them like you can with your own imagination kind of do stuff that kind of breaks break pierces the membrane of the everyday. And we try to do something like that almost every day. Did I tell, I told you about lighting the squirrel on fire this yesterday, didn't I? No, I didn't tell you about that. It was dead. The squirrel was dead. A squirrel. (laughs) This is a classic. You can take the boy out of Mississippi. (laughs) um, Not Mississippi. (laughs) I just love that you said the phrase like, did I tell you about setting the, the squirrel on fire yesterday? Was that you or I know I talked to my mom for a little bit. There yesterday. was a dead squirrel in the street. Um, there was a t- couple of turkey buzzards out there. So we had a little class lesson on turkey buzzards and what they do and don't do and how they'll the vomit, you know, uh, vomit rancid meat on you if you get too close. Oh, um, so anyway, we took gasoline out there and we poured it on the squirrel in the street and we lit it on fire. And I don't really know why I did that. I mean, there were flies on it. I think I told myself it would be more sanitary to light it on fire, but I really just wanted my children to see that you can light something on fire in the street if you want, nobody can stop you. And and they all came out in their pajamas and they're all sitting on the front porch and I was lighting it on fire. And then I gave the can of gasoline to Ferris, my youngest. Uh, She's F-bomb in the book. And I said, Ferris, go pour the rest of the gasoline on that fire. And she and she took it and she goes, okay. And she started walking over there. And I said, I stopped her. I was like, you can't pour gasoline on a fire. You have to wait until it's out, stomp it out, put water on it. So we had a little lesson about gas fires. But the fact that she was willing to do it, felt I felt like I had kind of done my job. Right. I feel like you're giving them... Uh, material for their books. I hope, man. You know, yeah. maybe they'll make music videos with all this stuff one day. Who knows? <laughs> and especially hearing you talk about your wife, and it sounds like she's so, you know, she's tame and she's calculated. I can imagine how that is a much needed sort of like, oh no, we're gonna have some fun. We're gonna have some <laughs> real fun today. Like it would almost amplify that in me. You know, like, like the feeling. Yeah. Of like, I mean, that's definitely a part of it. Like when they were, they were tying the dog to um, a, like a little tiny skateboard and then they tied the skateboard to a big wheel and they were all getting on and they were, you know, to go down the street, like a little parade. Um, And then the dog takes off at like 50 miles an hour and it's dragging them down the street. 
Like I know that I'm doing it right when I think I should text my wife to let her know we're about to do this. And then I don't text her. That's how I know like I've achieved perfect dadness. <laughs> You're, You're not so far gone that you don't even think about texting her. Cause that would be a horrible person, but you don't send the text. I should tell her that we're about to shoot fireworks out of a moving car. I should tell her that just to be like, but I shouldn't text and drive. So won't, won't that be fun? <laughs> like we, we were like every year I almost die with a firework event. Um, and I know it's bad and I know it's dangerous and I'm, we're going to end up in the ER one day, but I just feel like for me, that's the lesson that my father taught me. Like, Life is dangerous. Like, be ready for it. Like, and invite it in. Contr- learn to control it and sit with it. Learn to sit with danger and to sit with possibility. And with him, it was, you know, knives and saws and guns and, and hooks and water and boats. And with me, it's bikes and fireworks. And maybe it's stupid and maybe it's dangerous, but I'm trying to create a uh, little little heroes here and I, w- I don't want them to be afraid of stuff i don't want them to be to be afraid of the world and if they can see their mom who was a housewife homeschooled housewife from birmingham alabama my wife whose father was a pastor and mom was a housewife if they can see her throw all that to the side and go work at their school full time and be like this kick butt person who works at their school and she works more than I do. And if they can see me writing books and going on stupid book tours and they saw me write a screenplay and I was like, this is the worst screenplay ever. And we're talking about them and they're seeing me do that. And then they see us go out and shoot fireworks and drive around in the car when we shouldn't and break laws. I feel like it'll make them understand that, that life should be fun and have some scary moments in it and have some beauty and some fire and some flaming squirrels in it, if you can get those in there. Mm. Is that a reaction to your childhood, or is, there, or is that a continuance? I think it's a continuance, definitely. That's my dad. That's That was the reason, ultimately the reason that I don't feel anger towards my father or resentment towards my weird, strange, often terrible childhood was that it was, for my father, an adventure with his family, with us. And if I can make my life like that, anybody can, you, any dad can make your life like that. You can make your life an adventure with your family, whatever it is you're doing, whatever you want to do. If you want to go fishing, take your children. If you want to go on tour, take your kids, take your wife, make it weird. You know, bring your kids on stage or don't like whatever you want to do. Like when, when I, you know, I've got to go out to LA, um, to have some conversations about this uh, script that I worked on. And, you know, if I can, I'm going to bring one of my kids out there. I want them to see, I love LA. It's like a giant yeah. Bugs Bunny cartoon. I mean, it looks so cool and weird. And I want to take them because I want to give them something that when they tell their friends in college, they, they go, wow, you did that. Cause when I talk about my dad, people go, wow, you did that. You got to give your kids some wow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. God, what a good word. Jeez. I feel like you just preached there for a minute. I did. I was literally taking notes. What does the preacher say? As we pray. That's what you say at the end. And then you open your hand. Those are the three best words in the English language for a Christian. As we pray. Yeah. Like, oh, you're, you're, like, you're done. Lunch time. Wrap it up. <laughs> even now. Um, if you had to pick a moment to go back and relive, not to do differently, 
So not to change, not to select back to the future. It, um, in your, in your, since your kids have been born, what would that moment be? So just to relive it. Well, this is a, this is a question of like, would it be selfish or not? Would it be something that was really cool that happened to me or something really cool that happened to someone else? There are so many that I would do differently. Like I believe very strongly in regret. Um, I know we have a lot of no regret people in our culture, but I love regret. Regret has made me a better man. And I have a lot of moments that I would have done differently if I could. And I think, I sort of think that's what life is, is you regretting and then getting opportunities to make different decisions later that are better. Mm, Yeah. So I do believe that. So that's hard. So most of the things that I remember are all bad things that I do not want to relive. I guess I would have knowledge that I was reliving it. This is not going to feel like a fair answer, but this is kind of what I do for a living is Mm -hmm. reliving all of those moments again. Mm, What a great answer. And reliving them with better eyes and bigger eyes and a bigger heart and hopefully a bigger heart and more understanding I can't name a single one because if it's worth having, I've already lived it again. I've written about it or I've, or I've, I've put it in a book or I've put it in a story. And with this book, this third book that I'm writing right now, I'm pretty much, it's sort of like a memoir trilogy. And this third book is also a memoir nonfiction. I, I can't say much else about it, but it's going to be so good. Um, but it's this third book. I'm kind of, this is kind of it for that kind of storytelling. I mean, I know I'm going to stay alive and more things will keep happening to me that I can write about, but yeah, I've, I've lived through pretty much everything and thought about it again. Uh, so that's my answer. A good answer. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Next question. What's the thing that makes you feel like a successful dad? When my children uh, take risks that I have nothing to do with. Yeah. You know, when they say, you know, I, this is sort of connected to what I was talking about earlier, but when, you know, the other day they just, my wife, my wife was doing something in the kitchen. Maybe she'd just come back from the grocery store. I walked in, she said, where are the girls? I said, I don't know. And we looked around and I said, are their bikes gone? And she said, yeah. And their bikes were gone and they didn't ask if they could go. I mean, it's summer, you know, well, it, you know, up until this week when they started school, but it's summer. It was a Saturday or a Sunday. They got on their bikes. They left great. That's great. Like I I know so many parents who would die to have that opportunity or kids or adults who would die to be young again and to just take off on a bike without telling anybody. Yeah. And I felt so good in that moment. I was like, that's, and and she was like, you think you should get on your bike and go find them? I was like, you know, they might get kidnapped. I don't know, but probably not. (laughs) You're like, listen, honey, if they did, we're, we're getting a pool because that story is going to sell. <laughs> yeah. That story will sell. We, that's, that was a good callback, Dave. I appreciate it. That yeah. I, I would say when I see them take risks and take initiative, they're, you know, being three girls and you hear a lot about, you know, young boys take more initiative or it's more natural or they're encouraged to take initiative where girls maybe aren't. So I think it's great to see my daughters uh, ask to be in the higher math class, which, which happened last week. Or uh, to see um, my oldest daughter, she's not athletic, or at least she wasn't athletic at all, and asked to be on the volleyball team. 
And I mean, they're great. So to encourage that, like, yeah, you might, you probably suck at it. You probably do. We'll find out. But you should go do that. We didn't say that, obviously. And now she's on the JV volleyball team. And she's like one of the best people on the team. Oh, that's awesome. So it's so fantastic. And and my youngest uh, is, you know, she's 10 now. So she's just now getting into that place where she's wanting to do things and having her own ideas. So seeing them have their own ideas is so beautiful. And when they are edifying ideas, not, I mean, we all have nefarious, terrible ideas to watch some YouTube video we shouldn't watch or, or steal, you know, money out of dad's wallet or whatever, which seems to happen a lot. Um, when they have good ideas, uh, I think that's my, my best success because I won't be here forever and my wife won't be here forever. And by God, they better, you have to burn the squirrel or the squirrel will burn you, you know? There it is. And we have the title of the third book, just <laughs> like that. That's easily a bumper sticker too, which to me is really the qualifier for a great title. And I want to ask just really quickly this question. We'll ask one last question to be done. Is there any dust from your deciding to do, you know, you talk about this in the books, um, I think, especially in, in the first about you choosing to be an author I mean, is there any of that that's some of the hangover for why you want to see the girls take risks too? That that maybe there was a little bit of like, you know, that your parents, I don't remember them not being like, don't do it. But but if I'm remembering it right, there wasn't like this, you chase your dreams and you go, is there any of that in there too, possibly? Um, probably. There probably is. It's going to be hard enough to make the dream real, right? Mm no matter if you have encouraging parents or not, it's hard enough. So let's make, maybe I can take that fight off the table for them mm -hmm. and just say, yeah, it's going to be pretty hard. Like if they want to know about the creative life, like I can tell them. And, mm. you know, I know y'all's kids that y'all can have that same conversation and so many people listening can. So I'm going to take that off and be like, Oh, you want to, if you want to know if you can do it, like, Absolutely. Let me tell you about all the, the nightmare of amazingness that will happen if you do it. But I don't want them to have to convince me that they should go do something. Mm, um, wow. Their desire to convince me is what will strengthen them to do the thing. So they will have to fight plenty of battles. And I'll ask a lot of tough questions. And, you know, I, I mean, if they want to go do 2D animation in Tulsa, I might try to get them to go somewhere else for 2d animation but maybe it's possible in tulsa you know i got a buddy who writes for adventure time and he lives in mississippi you know so like crazier things have happened um so i'm gonna say the answer is yes that it was hard enough to fight the battle with others and within myself that it was okay to do the dream and then to do it so i'm not gonna make my kids have to fight that battle man that's a good word okay so so last question and I'll preface this by saying, so you are working on the third book, so we do know there's going to be uh, more hilarity and profundity to come, right? Oh, yeah. So, so profound. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, I don't know if you met that man, but he was very profound. He was full of profundness. Um, so what do you want your kids to say at your funeral? Um, we never knew him. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. There will be some turkey left over from one of his VIPs. Uh, uh, what do I want them to say at my funeral? Um, <laughs> there's so many funny answers. Oh, I mean, this is which is fitting. That's what I feel like. That's what Harrison Scott Key would want um, his kids to say. Some joke. 
he didn't like so many of you. (laughs) 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 Um, Or, Dad, if you're in heaven, if that's where you are. (laughs) Um, You know, I I just hold on. I have to say this. I'm just imagining the sweet girls many years from now, many, many years from now, many years from now, when you die from that accidental gun wound from hunting by yourself or bow and arrow wound, uh, who knew that it could bounce off a tree so effectively and straightly right back at you. Um, I could just imagine them standing and you have made them. You're like deathbed. You're holding the oldest hands and you're saying, look at me. And she's like, anything, dad. And you're like, I'm going to give you this sheet and you have to read these names. And she's like, okay, yeah, of course. What, what are the names for? And you're like, it, you'll know, and I'm not going to tell you, but will you swear to me on my dying wish? She's like, anything. And she's standing up there and she's just like, what the heck? Okay, so first, uh, Uncle Mike, dad didn't really like you. <laughs> uh, and Nancy, he liked you for a while, but he said specifically the last 10 years made him unlike the beginning. <laughs> this is terrible. Why did I say it? <laughs> and it's like 130 people long. Yeah, that's funny. I probably will write something for my children to read at my funeral. I kind of have to. I don't want them to laugh and cry. I want them to cry a lot. But I want them to laugh. If they don't laugh at my funeral, then I didn't do it right. Mm, um, man. And I want them to cry because I made them laugh. That's why I want them to cry because I'm gone, you know? Mm. So if, if they would, if that happens at the funeral, then I will have done my job. Jeez Louise. That's great. Oh my God. I just got teary. <laughs> that was incredible. How did you do that so quickly? Holy crap. I got a knife. <laughs> you have a knife. Yeah, you have a knife. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. This interview to me is exactly your gift set. It's hysterical and wildly profound. And so I'm I'm super duper grateful that you took some time to uh, hang with us and and, and chat. It's uh, much appreciated. We're gonna end this by putting you back up on that hill with the wall around yeah, you. We just we're gonna put two walls around so you. I'm actually right now having walls constructed around both of your homes. <laughs> Y'all can hear the sound. Oh, okay, that's, that's what who that those guys is. are. Yeah, yeah. That's great. We've talked forever, but the recording time only says 12 minutes. The time has really, it really. It has. That's the trick. Is the power that I have is I record what I want to, when I want to. And that's really. He edits in real time. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I say is not going to make the podcast. That's how I like to start phone calls now. Like when, when I call anybody, the first thing I say is, do you mind if I record this? The attorney said I had to. That would make me so uncomfortable. But would I would love, you know, fun fact about John, just FYI, um, John does this thing where he will try to keep telemarketers on the phone for as long as he can. And it is, I can't imagine more painful things. And there's nothing that maybe brings John more joy in this life than like trying to converse or ask really obtuse questions that are just enough that they're like, I should probably answer that, but not so far. They're like, okay, this guy's messing with me. It makes me wildly. And look, I, I recommend everyone doing it. I actually made, I, I posted a video on Instagram saying, Hey, listen, telemarketers, I will not hang up on you. I've found a new angle for this whole thing. This is like death and taxes and telemarketers. We all, no one can escape it, <laughs> but I'm just going to embrace it. And it has added so much joy to my life. 
and taken so much joy away from so many telemarketers. So how often um, do they get angry with you? Never. Never. Because they don't, they're, they're not going to waste their time being angry. And maybe that, maybe that's in the future. Maybe this call hasn't happened yet, but they just, they eventually, they just hang out. Can I cuss on this podcast? Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. I sometimes do that. I don't do that as much as you do, John, but I was talking to a, a guy who was asking me about it, if I needed a credit card. And I said, I did. And we got to talking and I said that, I said, my, my wife has burned up the other one shopping. She's been shopping and we need a new credit card. And could he help me out? And thank for, thank you for calling. How did you know? And by the end of it, he goes, Oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, Hey man, like, you could, he was so, like he got it. It like all hit him so hard. Yeah, like yeah. five minutes is like, oh no, you lie, you lying to me. Bye. Oh my gosh, <laughs> he was like, I'm about to make my first ever sale. I've been at this company for nine years. I'm about to make <laughs> about my to first make sale. My first sale. <laughs> I can finally get that pool. He wanted to kill me. Oh my oh, gosh, that's so rewarding. It is. Well, thank you so, so, so much for doing this. You, let us know next time you're in Nashville and we'll all uh, have a socially distanced uh, meal. Please. I don't get up to Michigan a lot, but if I get up there, I would definitely, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I tell you what, if I'm coming, I am. I'm going to I'm gonna Instagram, text you guys. We're going to go crack open a can of Pringles. <laughs> just go ham. <laughs> just go, going to just go black out. Ham. Like, like wake up the next day, like wearing each other's clothes. Like what? Happened? So thirsty. Tearing so walls, thirsty. Tearing walls down, building bridges and tearing down walls. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> you got a lot of titles for the next uh, for the I next know. book out of this. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This was this was fun. Y'all are weird, but this was great. <laughs> All you wonderful, beautiful, kind people. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. If you have a second, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and write a review. Unless it's bad. Because that stuff really does matter. And please follow us on socials. You can find us everywhere at Dadville Podcast. Also, you can follow us each at Dave Barnes Music and at John McLaughlin to find out more about our music. Thanks for listening.